So, you know, you know how I wanted to start this episode? Go on. I just wanted to, and that's what I was actually aiming to do. So I, I was on before you came on, and I kept on repeating endlessly, Damir. Yes. Damir. Yes. And then I would alternate, Marushish. Yeah. Marushish. And just keep on doing that. Yeah. I, for for whose benefit? <laughs> Oh man, I don't know why. I, I I just think it's funny to like keep on saying people's names over and over in like a chant like voice, especially if it's if it's pronounced in a different way in a different culture. Because I I just call you Demir, yeah. And then I was listening to this uh, podcast that you were on with Michael Weiss, where Michael Weiss makes it a point to pronounce your name correctly according to the accurate Croatian thing or whatever. And he says it very well and very specifically, Dami and Maroshesh. Yes. And I just found that really amusing because I don't think people know you that way. Yeah. No, I don't think they do. They also don't know that yesterday was your birthday. So happy birthday. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I mean, you, you've, you've let the people know. On Twitter, but if people who listen, some of them aren't on Twitter, they won't have known. So I think it's important to inform our listeners that the co-founder and brainchild or brain father. Brain father. Um, <laughs> brain, when you think about it, brainchild, does that even really make sense? Yeah. Wouldn't it be the brain father or well, the brain mother? Well, no, it's it's <laughs> wisdom of crowds is the brainchild of the brain father. I think that's Oh, yes, correct. yes, yes. That's true, actually. Yeah. So the brain, the brain um, parent of... Uh, the Wisdom of Crowds had his birthday yesterday. He's in Croatia, so we couldn't celebrate it in person. But um, it's a special day, as I told people on Twitter. Um, and it's it's a it's almost something close to a national among intellectuals. It's almost like a national holiday in Croatia because you know you're sort of someone that they take pride in that you were able to emigrate and become a big Croatian American essayist yes. in America. Yes. And you know, at, rightfully so. I mean, Croatians don't have a lot of exports to America or perhaps to anywhere, I don't know. Yeah. Um you know, I I don't know anyone in this country. I know my parents. That's literally it. You mean Croatians? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know a few Americans at this point. Which is so I think you told me this before you don't you don't really know any anyone in the Croatian American community here in DC? Um yeah not really. No, not really. Um what about the Croatian embassy? I presume they have one here. They do have one. That's it's a uh, it's a very nice little building uh with a nice uh, statue by Ivan Mestrovic, who was actually uh a famous Croatian sculptor whose sculptures are actually all over the Midwest because at one point in his uh I guess later in his life, he ended up, I forget where, in Cleveland, I think, um, teaching there. Um, but he's legit. He's legit sort of like world famous as a as a sculptor. And actually, there's like a, a famous sculpture of his in Chicago that you can go huh. check out. So there's one of his uh, one of his sculptures in front of the Croatian embassy. No, I mean, I, I, I've, I've been to the embassy. Uh, I've there's, but the there's another famous Croatian, I think, that Americans will be familiar with, um, Goran Ivanisevic. Correct. I remember when I was growing up and when I would watch tennis with Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi and all that, Goran Ivanisevic was known to be one of the best servers, yeah. I think. That but do you, do you remember? Do you remember what else was sort of his problem? Like, I mean, no. And I mean, it, it's it's actually it's it's quite. Um, well, I don't know. Telling it's it's uh, it's it's correct to many stereotypes uh, in um, what you call it. Uh, 
in the Balkans and, you know, just in general, what, what like Balkanites are, he was very talented as a server and was actually a, a pretty decent, like all around player. He was really good on grass, if I remember correctly. But, mm. um, but he just did not have it in his head. Like he, he, he was so volatile, so emotional. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Like he would just melt down. Like he just couldn't tackle, you know, I mean, he was, he was, he was, uh, not on the level of, of, uh, Agassi and Sampras, certainly on the record. Uh, but you know, like on, on sort of raw talent he was, but like Agassi just had his number and Agassi was like a, you know, when, I mean, it's actually interesting because if you remember Agassi early on in his career was also kind of a wild child and and would like lose his temper and but he whatever. got better over time as he matured. I think he totally I matured and and like he got a new trainer that I I forget that that weird dude with the the glasses but like he totally broke um, Agassi of that sort of youthful thing and and Ivan Isovic never was broken of that. Like, but that's he, not a cultural thing with Croatians. I mean, you seem very measured and calm and and rational, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, okay. I know uh, we're sort of like, obviously this is not meant to be taken seriously or literally, but I, I do think it's interesting how cultures are perceived, even if they're stereotypes that are incorrect and misleading. What would you say the, um, the stereotype of Croatians is? Well, I don't know Croatians, but in general, like the, the, but the what, what do people say about you guys? No, but I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the broader region. I mean, there's all sorts of stereotypes, I think, you know, like, I mean, it, they, they all sort of come down from the, the broader stereotype of Slavs as being sort of backwards, uh, in general. Uh, and then the Southern Slavs, which is what Yugoslavia is, it means the land of the Southern Slavs. Um, I mean, you just go read, uh, I don't know, that book by Rebecca West and, you know, there's all sorts of sort of ethnic stereotyping that goes on there. It's like, and it's basically comes down to, you know, passionate and wild. And it's like this interesting sort of European orientalizing, you know, cause I mean, a lot of it was under the Ottoman yoke. And, uh, um, so, so it's that it's just basically, you know, these lands are, are, uh, reasonably mountainous in parts and, and like, you know, uh, sparsely populated. And so you get like, you know, I mean, it, in most, most sort of travelers didn't really, you know, it was sort of terra incognita well into the uh, you know early 20th century. People just didn't know anything. So you, you'd have people traveling and yeah, you get these sort of like they're passionate. And so, I mean, if there's, if there's a stereotype, in fact, it's like that the Croats were sort of the, the, and especially for like Rebecca West, it was this sort of um, idea that, you know, the Croats had sold out by actually becoming Europeanized and, other sort of Southern Slavic people were more authentic for being wild and, and passionate and whatever. But it's like that hot-headed thing. That's like one of the, the, the things that I think like remains. I feel that's so standard because whenever I think Europeans and Westerners use the whole passionate, wild, hot-headed stereotype for so many different cultures. Yeah. I mean, certainly like Arabs. Yeah. Um, but also, I suppose Italians, Spaniards, and the and the Greeks yep. too. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. obviously, you'd have to be on the northern side of Europe to be stereotyping the Southerners in quite that way. It is worth noting, and I hadn't really thought of it in this way before, that all of those places, for the most part, were. Um, had strong Muslim influences and Arab influence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly Greece was under Ottoman rule for several centuries. Um, Italy less so, but Sicily and parts of southern, modern day southern Italy um, did have sort of um, uh, Muslim and Arab footholds. Uh, Malta, I don't know if anyone really describes the Maltese in a particular way. Oh, those hot headed Maltese. I think that might be true. I think they are hot headed. <laughs> 
No one knows a Maltese person except, of course, for our friend Mayor Pete. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, anyway, I mean, we didn't have Arabs here. It's, 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 we had the, the Turk. The Turk was here. And, uh, so, you know, yeah. like that's, uh, Muslims, Arabs, all the same. All the same. Thing. You know how it is. I do know how it is. I do. So modern day Croatia, was that mostly, um, under Ottoman rule for, for, no. Se- for, no, we were, that's the other thing. It's like the, the Croatian sort of self understanding as being like the ramparts of Christendom. Uh, and it's, it's part of the sort of self identification. That's why, you know, the sort of the exoticists that would come to the Balkans, they would, uh, they would scorn us for being soft and, and sort of because we're less exotic because we were under the Austrians and the Hungarians. Um, and so, you know, it's the ramparts of Christendom. And, and so like one of the sort of psychological things that, that in general ends up happening is that, that, you know, Croats always look West and, and are nervous to get lumped in with the rest of the Western Balkans because, you know, they feel like for whatever reason they're, they're better and they're not from here. And it's, it's, you know, on very sort of, I would say, um, uh, basic geopolitical uh level uh is really dumb because you know uh it, we, we could be like actually having an active and actually useful foreign policy the croats could if they wanted to um but the slovenes and the croats are both just we we're in europe and just like forget about our neighbors on the side like they're out you know and that's that's the sort of psychology it's not completely fair but it's it's largely fair and it's it's like Croatia is just absent in in its broader region uh, hmm. when really it should be, you know, acting as a bridge and trying to sort of lift everyone up and, and you know, I don't know, work to solutions rather. Like if not if, – if it's doing something, it's usually as much as anything uh, complicating things in the region. So, um, yeah. That's a nice little primer on um, Croatia right there for mm. our listeners. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. We've been like good, good friends for a while now. And, um, I think I'm learning more about your region, your culture, mm. <laughs> but there's still a lot I don't know. I mean, um, and I never really had, um, Eastern Europeans as friends, um, as friends before. I don't know. Wait, do would we consider Georgia the country, Eastern Europe, or is that just like Caucasus? That's like a different region. Uh, I mean, you need to ask a Georgian. I don't want to offend anyone here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but like our friend Ani, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I think I've learned. Yeah, it's ca- it's the Caucasus. It's not. I mean, it's they'll say that it's Europe goes to the Caucasus, but I don't think that technically it's not Eastern Europe, <laughs> even though it's east of Eastern Europe. So, look, but that's really like a really nice thing about friendship in that these are regions I don't think I would have become particularly familiar with in any sort of organic way. I mean, certainly I wouldn't have gone to Georgia. Right. Um, and traveled there throughout the country if it wasn't for Ani. And hopefully one day I'll get to visit Croatia if you will um, come up with some like special trip for us. Well, I mean, as you as you know, Shadi, I mean, for you in particular, I mean, we can certainly come through Croatia, but we're going to Bosnia and we're going to find you a nice, a nice Bosnian <laughs> wife. That's the plan. <laughs> oh, wow. You, you joke. But um, so uh, – I was on um, our Bosnian friends podcast, Riyada Akil, yes. uh, the wife of Mustafa Akil, also a, a good friend. And, um, you know, I think at the end, I haven't listened to the whole podcast, but apparently at the end, um, we do joke a little bit about Riyada finding me or keeping an eye out, presumably for a Bosnian Muslim wife or something like that. Shadi, so, honestly, <laughs> that's one of the, the main things I talk to Riyada about when I talk to Riata is just how we're we're going to find you a nice Bosnian girl. We're both convinced. Oh, really? That you guys is, talk about that yeah. um, in, in my absence? In your absence? Yeah. I mean, it's I, very I, thoughtful. I, I I think I think it's just it's meant to be. It's it, <laughs> like it's just exactly how this is going to work out. Oh, that's funny. 
Well, I mean, I do look forward to the time when we'll be able to try. Like, even talking about travel now seems a little bit odd. Um, I haven't been on a plane since February, so it's been almost a year, really. Yeah. And that last time I was on a plane in February was actually to like not even like an interesting place. I think it was like Greenville, South Carolina. I was giving a talk um, at a college there. Um, I haven't been out of the country since our, um, I feel like we were talking about like the trips that like we took as, as a group of friends. I feel like it's a little bit, you know, it's fine. I think, well, uh, well I, we did go skiing yeah, in, but, in France. But, but, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, to make it more, more general on that, um, two questions. I mean, I saw on Twitter, you're saying, so you, you've actually completely isolated for the last five days and it's, it's driving you a little bonkers. Let me just say before you even answer that, it's like it's just it's it's interesting how the the psychology of all of this stuff happens. Um, uh, just today, uh, the Croatian authorities announced that uh, travel between cities as of like next Tuesday is going to be banned. Now, really, like, it's not technically they're doing it on on the municipal level, on the municipality or the county or whatever. Because uh, I don't know, like I guess enforcing on a city by city basis, given you know villages and whatever, would be nearly impossible. But yeah, you're going to need like papers to travel between counties in Croatia starting on Tuesday, and that's like through January eighth. And so I had no real plans of leaving Zagreb. We're here, you know, uh, for all sorts of reasons with the family, uh, at least through then. But as soon as that that was announced, uh, I don't know. I felt like extra claustrophobic, and it's not even announced yet. But I just feel like I can't leave. Zagreb now until like January 8th by law. That's a weird feeling. So I don't know. Talk wow. a little bit, talk a little bit about being, uh, about like why, why you're, why are you, uh, uh, not seeing anyone for five days yeah, and, and well, what's first, your mental state? My instinctive reaction when you say that Croatia is banning inner city travel, like I literally thought to myself in my mind, wait, isn't like, isn't that unconstitutional? Right. Like as an American, that's like naturally what I go to. And I think there's something interesting there that there's something that so many of us Americans have when we hear about the state encroaching upon, you know, things that are quite private and personal, like whether or not you go from one city to another and make your own individual decisions. Um, I, I just think to myself, should the state really have the power to regulate my movements in quite that manner? And my instinct is to say no. And I think there would be probably constitutional challenges if, um, uh, if there was some way to enforce a ban on in, inner city travel within the United States, I, I, I mean, I just I can't imagine Americans accepting that. Yeah, right? I mean, I yeah, no, and and honestly, I mean, I was just like leafing through the Croatian papers, the press, and I saw at least one pundit writing, be like, not not certainly not not uh, summoning any constitutional rights. We don't have those, but it's it's, <laughs> but it, <laughs> come on, you guys have a constitution in Croatia, uh, probably, right? but I don't think I don't think there's something like the. The, I don't know, whatever. Uh, yeah, there's no, there's, this is not even emergency powers. This is just like, uh, you know, I don't think it's emergency powers. Actually, I should look into that. I actually don't know under what, under what statute they're doing it, but they did it already in the first wave, um, in the, in the spring. And, you know, there yeah. were, the people were unhappy about it and whatever, but like it, it mostly held. Um, so I don't know. Actually, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure exactly on, on, on what authority they are. I just assume that, that it's, uh, you know, uh, part of the government's allowed to do this sort of thing. Um, but it's sort of, but it's sort of like, you know, um, when there's people that, you know, who are having like a party or a gathering and let's say you don't actually want to go because you don't like them, mm. you still want to be invited. So you, you know, that you have the prospect of going to the party. Yep. 
Right. I think this is sort of what you're getting at. No, that's exactly right. And that's, that's, it's like, uh, uh, I don't know if you know David Ryan on Twitter. He's, he's been around for a while. He's a really interesting dude. And he actually, uh, I, I put that up on, on Twitter and, uh, and he said, we are more sensitive to that which is taken from us than the things we never had. And I think oh, that's wow. Right. And I think that's, that's right. That's actually extremely well put. Yeah, yeah. Did he make that up? I think so. He's like that. He's good. You should follow him if you don't. Wait, is this Captain David Ryan? Yeah, Captain David Ryan. Oh, my God. Yeah, I do follow him. Yeah. yeah I mean, great. I think he was actually in the military. I, I, I don't know how you become a captain exactly, but wait, what? No, no. He's not. I don't, his captainhood is, has nothing to do with the, with the military. I don't know. He might have been in the military, but like he, he's uh, – um, I think he, he changed his Twitter handle to captain because I've been following for a really long time. When he – I forget. I think it was a photographer and sort of like a like – a, artist and sort of like blogger and stuff like that and then he was just like screw it i am um building a boat and he built a boat he built like a trimaran or a catamaran or something and like he charters it and like takes people on that and then he oh. like expanded that and now he's got a an airplane and he seems to fly an airplane around and he's like so he's literally a captain literally captain david ryan <laughs> that's cool yeah Okay, but before I forget, you did ask me a question about being in isolation yeah so i i will share something with our listeners, I also shared it on Twitter earlier, and it's been difficult. It's been challenging, and I had to come out and say it to the people, to the masses, so they knew, so they could know what what I was going through <laughs> and that we could struggle together. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great thing. Can you imagine being in self-isolation like 50 years ago when there was no way to actually be in touch virtually with anyone? How much di- more difficult that would have been? So like the 1918... Um, Spanish flu, whatever they're calling it, pandemic, that literally to be in isolation meant that you were completely alone. I wonder, I mean, that that's that's an interesting thing to think about, like how humans, like whether or not we're capable of even doing that. Um, because I don't know anyone who's been in full isolation in, in the fullest sense of the word, because most people are online and they're talking to people, they're Zooming, whatever. And I think that actually takes some of the edge off of the experience. But anyway, basically, since the pandemic started um, last March, this is the longest I've gone, I think, without human interaction. So I'm on day five right now of not socializing, not seeing any friends, um, not really seeing any human beings, just being in my apartment, really. And the reason that I'm doing that is I don't know exactly why. To be fair, I guess... I was going to ask, it is a little puzzling, but go on. (laughs) Look, I'm seeing my parents on Sunday or Monday for the holidays, for the Christmas break and all that. And I just feel like I should be extra careful this time around because like, we're, we're very close to vaccine time. And I think it would be like really absurd if we've gotten through like the last nine months as a, as a nation, state, city, my family, family whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, like I'm like hanging out with people and then somehow like just by some weird chance, one of my friends was being a little bit, um, I don't know, unsafe. And then it just seems like we're, we've got, like, you know how it is? Like um, when you can see the light at the end of a tunnel, you'll maybe even be more careful and more extreme in your precautions than early on in the pandemic when things might have been worse, but it was untenable to not see your friends or to be completely alone because we like you can't do that for nine months. So there was no light at the end of the tunnel. 
And we sort of had to find a way to sustain things as we've talked about on this podcast with our like pod, we would find five or six of our closest friends as we did with our group. Yeah. And we would see each other like at least once a week, uh, oftentimes more than that. So I knew I would have like a regular, um, social interaction. Yep. Um, and, um, but now it's sort of like, let's be extra careful because we're almost there, guys. We're almost at the finish line. It's like when you're, I don't know, I've never done a marathon, but I assume not like, or even like a 800 yard dash or whatever. And at that, when you see that you're almost there, you just try to go a little bit faster because you want to finish strong. What? Yeah. But so, <laughs> no, I mean, sure. But like, it, what, so you've, would you say you've, you've, uh, this is the, the light at the end of the tunnel has forced you to recalibrate your risk meter because the chances of you killing your parents were about the same when you were being less careful. But that was a, okay, but I was still careful then, but like keep in mind too that back then we could hang out outdoors and that's something I would be comfortable with even if I knew I was seeing my parents like the next day or a few days after. And I've done that quite recently, but this is the first time I'm about to see my parents. We're hanging out with people outdoors is not really a viable option. As an Arab, I'm not able to be outdoors in cold temperatures. It's like a biological thing. Yeah. And I was complaining. Ethnic essentialism. Ethnic, yes. And I was complaining about this. Like I met up with a friend like in a park um, a week or two ago. And I thought like, I was like, I'm never doing this again. Like it was freezing and I can't be in this cold weather for more than five to 10 minutes at a time. So I think that's also a major shift. Hmm. Throughout the summer and going into the fall, it was pretty easy to just see people wherever, outside and all that. Now it's becoming harder. Um, and I think to uh, – anyway, putting all that aside, I can share with you guys what it is like to be alone for five days. But it's also kind of like an abs- – I, I obviously know it's absurd. Like five days is not a long time. And when I tweeted that – some people were taking it literally like, like shady. Like, are you serious? You think this is a big deal? Yeah, mo- I, I mean, think a lot of people have taken lockdown a lot more seriously than you have. So as a result, <laughs> I think a lot of people have like, but but, you, it's but you knew that. You knew that, and you're trolling them. That's I'm trolling. Yeah, yeah because, um, if, well, first of all, um, I I kind of made a joke out of it that I I said something like, well, someone should do a profile on on me and my experience. So people can learn about my experiment. And I guess like some people couldn't tell, like I was being snarky about it. Obviously, I don't think this is the most amazing thing. For me, it is. Right. And I honestly think that when I'm done with this experiment, it will have been, if I continue it, eight days until I see my parents without any social interaction. I am not joking. I think eight days is the longest I will have gone without socializing Perhaps since the 2000s, maybe even um, since the late 90s. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, well. So it is actually unusual for me. And I think that for all my pretensions of being someone who likes his alone time and somewhat introverted, which you guys don't believe, i.e. my friends don't believe that because you guys generally see me a lot. And there's like no real sign that I'm an introvert for the most part. I like social gatherings. Um, I do know, I I do know now that I'm definitely not 
a proper introvert because five days into this and I'm like, oh my God. And it's been really hard. I, I mean, it's hard. I'm going to have to, I'm saying no to Ani and a couple other people meeting up for dinner tomorrow. And that's difficult for me. Yeah. Yeah. It should be. I don't know, man. I mean, like, yeah, I, I, I guess, I mean, I hear you. I hear you. I, I don't think I've, 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 and I am introverted much more than you. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I've gone quite as much. I mean, I, I did spend like almost a full two weeks um, just seeing my parents like outside in the yard and like not actually interacting with them at all. Um, okay. Know, but to be fair, social, when I say socializing, I don't think parents really count. Oh, well, then I've done it. Then I, then I, <laughs> I, sco- I score like a year. I score in your efforts. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess you haven't. I mean, not to not to imply that you don't have any friends in Croatia. I don't. No, but I don't. I I, I literally don't. But go on. No, but even if you did, like, it wouldn't be a good idea because you're staying with your parents who are on the older side, and you you obviously have to be careful about that. But um, maybe you wouldn't. Even putting that aside, like maybe you still wouldn't. But um, uh, but is that how are you finding that? Like only talking really to your parents and not having, well, I guess you talk to me through the podcast and you're on our group chat. So you're still sort of hanging out with oh, us. Exactly. Virtually. And I mean, and that's the part, right. It's, it's like, so I, you know, uh, um, did you, did you read the, the last five days? I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that, um, uh, I managed to pull off though, I, I guess it was, I'd already gotten out of the, you know, the actual sort of like physical isolation, uh, but I managed just like one weekend. I just I I did turn it all off and I I I ripped through a uh, Faulkner novel just like in one sitting. Um, so I mean, you know, you're saying. So I, I'm reading I'm reading um uh, a biography of um uh like four of Teddy Roosevelt's key advisors, and it's sort of about that period when America becomes you know comes out of its shell and it's his first sort of foray and of expansion beyond the sort of continental, you know, like the Spanish American war. And it's a profile of these, these four people and whatever. So it's a biography. It's one of these like, you know, hmm. uh, well, it's actually a five way biography because the, the fifth person is TR himself. So it's not terribly detailed, but the first half of the book goes by, you know, each, each chapter is one of the guys and, and uh, goes to their sort of, yeah, and, and it's striking again, you know, how much things have changed and just have these little snippets of sort of family life, of how people amuse themselves. And, um, and even, you know, just talking to my parents about, uh, like my great uncle and the apartment where here in Zagreb, that used to be his place. And there are these like wild old paintings of, you know, that he seems to have collected of people who aren't in the family. So I'm actually in this one room and it's like, there's like a, a painting of a sea captain and this other woman. And I don't know, we just kept them because they're kind of weird and old, but, but, you know, the, even his generation, like when he's growing up, uh, this uh, great uncle of mine, um, you know, we have like a, a reel-to-reel footage of them sort of entertaining themselves on Christmas from, I don't know when this would have been, like either immediately post-war or something like that. Post-war you have that Yugoslavia. footage? Yeah, yeah. And it's, wow. it's uh, and you know what they're doing? They're, they're, uh, they're amusing each other by like putting on like little skits. They're hanging oh. out and they're, they're like doing little performances. Now, of course, someone's filming it and it's silent. So there's no, but it's, and they've, they've even like scripted the filming of these little skits that they're doing for each other. You know what I mean? And it's like, 
it's it, it just it, it made me think a little bit about you know uh, the role of reading. Just like what is socializing in so many ways. Like we don't we don't socialize that way. We don't we don't get together with a group of people and do skits. I mean, I guess we get together with a group of people and we have our own routines that we're constantly like BSing it's at each other like about. Skits. Yeah, kind of, but not in the same way. I I do feel like that's a little bit odd, and it, it does. Uh, my understanding is that in the historical times, like people were rather creative in how they did things together and they would, um, I'm trying to think what else, I mean, playing cards. I mean, I play cards when I go home, uh, with my parents, we play some, uh, and scrabble and stuff like that. I mean, we don't really do that here in DC. Yeah. Like I can't even imagine us like sitting down and like playing scrabble. I guess we could if we really wanted to. And there are people that like board games. I mean, they even opened that bar a while ago. Remember, it was like the boardroom or something, and there was like people. What playing a silly board games. concept! I, I never understood it. But but <laughs> but but the, the the idea of friends getting together and playing board games, I think that's not that strange. I mean, I think yeah, they're, yeah. They're and I used to play Risk. I mean, back in the day, I mean, we used to have legendary games of Risk. Risk is incredibly fun. I mean, probably our group of friends would like it because we all like international affairs and domination. The domination. Have you ever played? Do you did you ever play Risk when you were a youngster? Um, I played Risk on the computer actually, and that even tells you something about that. Like, so I never actually had the the like the Risk board game, and I never actually you know played it on an actual physical board. But I know the rules of the game because I played on the computer and stuff like that. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, it's it's a fun game. I don't know. So, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's, 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 yeah, it's the luxury of the internet and the ability to just sort of talk, but there, there is something, that's why I keep sort of coming back to this, you know, even just as like however many weeks ago uh, in this tunnel that I'm at right now, when I just shut it all off and, and read a book, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, you're, 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 you're five days in and you're missing actually socializing with people. So you're filling in that gap by like frantically socializing, I guess on Twitter, or like, you know, chatting with people or whatever. Um, but that's why it is. It's like, it's, it's some of the, the happiest I've ever been, um, has been, uh, when I've gone like sailing and actually one of the, the happiest experiences for me was when my dad and I crossed the Atlantic on a sailboat and you don't have anything over there. You got books and you got a boat and you got to sail the boat and that's like day in and day out. And, but even like on a smaller thing, like when, you know, when, uh, the the boat was here and my dad was in, in greater health and we'd just go sailing in the summer. Um, you know, there's, there is internet, uh, you can like get it, but it's just like you, after a while, when you just sort of push all that off and it's not in your head and it's not in your rhythm and you realize stuff is going on, but you're not as connected to it and you can, I don't know, just, just sideline it. That's just that. That is heaven. That's like that's the best. That's I love the, the sound best. of that. Yeah, but didn't you go and to it, a cabin recently to try and write? Did you? Did you manage? But I wasn't to... completely alone. Yeah, yeah. So it's different. I feel like having at least like one other person there does make a difference. So like you were with your dad, for example. Yeah. I mean, I I like spending um, time with my family without seeing friends. So like when I go home to Pennsylvania, I don't really have many <laughs> friends. Pennsylvania, from back it's in the day. Croatia. <laughs> Yeah, kind of. Uh, but I also like, I mean, I guess there are people who, if I really wanted to, from high school who are probably still around, but that's not a time of my life that I particularly long for or envy how I felt when I was a high schooler. I feel like I moved on from that phase in my life and I don't necessarily want to see the people who I knew back then. 
again. (laughs) Maybe not ever, but like, it's just not a priority. Sure. Sure. Um, so, uh, wait, how did we get into all this? I don't know. I don't know. Cause your, your, your isolation, I was just sort of interested in how that goes. Um, oh, but I, I did want to say something about, um, so I think, I think part of what's difficult for me is, um, there are certain things that I get tempted by. So for example, ordering Domino's pizza, there is a real risk that when I'm alone for several days at at a time, it's sort of like, let me live my best life or let me try to blunt the pain and the sadness and the feeling of aloneness, also known as loneliness, I suppose. Yeah. I think that, oops. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, like I, I, like having Domino's, so basically what I order, um, I, I've probably mentioned this on the podcast before because as, as our listeners will know, I have a preoccupation with Domino's pizza as like one of the best things ever. And I just discovered it basically at the start of the pandemic. And I hadn't had it probably for 10, like, I don't know, like five for 10 years or something. But um, I order uh, order a pizza, but then I also get these boneless buffalo wings and Domino's does them in a special way where they layer the wings with sauce and cheese and it is so indulgent and you have like two things. So I like when I order delivery and I want to enjoy myself, I have two different things. So that way I'm mixing it up a little bit and I go back and forth. So I got my pizza and that's, and that's really yummy. But then I also got my wings and it is honestly like the level of contentment that I feel in that moment. I can't even begin to describe to you. Shadi. I, I I think we need to get you that Bosnian wife. <laughs> your life your your life your life needs something else than than Domino's chicken wings layered on cheese or whatever the hell you just described. <laughs> oh man! And I feel like I should have been able to do more reading in during these five days. I have to say that I haven't I haven't been doing the kind of reading that I would like. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because sometimes you need something to focus the mind. Uh, When you just feel like you have a lot of time to yourself, you're not really structuring or prioritizing your little time blocks as much as you should. No, for sure, for sure. It's really hard. I mean, I'm finding it really hard now without the, the, you know, the structure of like the nine to five of, you know, putting out the magazine. I mean, I'm doing several things right now and, and, and juggling apart from like working on the book project and all the rest of this, but I'm finding it, I'm finding it, it, it difficult to, you know, pick and choose and how to, how to, how to get things done. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess it's just like a, it's a, it's, it's practice and sort of just trying to, to get better at it and not, not not let important things slip through, uh, especially sort of like the big project, which always you can sort of put off and be like, well, I'll get to that later because I need to do X, Y, and Z before. Just got to start carving time out and just doing it. So I don't know. I mean, partly partly it's 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 weird because the American interest ended just at, as the pandemic was, you know, at, the, at its height. And so already life was less structured because, you know, working remotely and all the rest of this. And then, um, now, like life is completely unstructured, but I, I guess I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how. We'll see how much, uh, how much life returns to former rhythms uh, with the vaccine. You know, like what sticks around and what doesn't. How much we're wearing masks. How much people are still cautious because likely there'll still be outbreaks for a while. It's not going to get like completely destroyed, like polio. You know, et cetera. Um, but I, I got to say, I think overall. 
when I look back, I hope anyway, after I look back at the, you know, this pretty shitty year overall, um, I think it will have done me good ultimately, uh, for all of these reasons, for being able to, uh, at least sort of grapple with unstructured time better. I hope, I don't know. Yeah. Huh. I think I'd like to think that about myself too. There's certainly realizations that have dawned upon me. I mean, I've definitely gotten better at reading fiction as we've talked about. So I feel like my novel reading has increased significantly. I've spent more time with my parents, which I'm grateful for. I got I got a book deal for the, for the book that I'm currently working on now. And in terms of structuring time, so I, I'm pulling it up right now, actually. Um, I have an Excel sheet where I try to document how many words um, I've written per day. And unfortunately, it's not quite what I hoped it would be. So for example, on December 12th, I see an entry in the Excel sheet. It says negative 20. Wow, you just deleted words. <laughs> yes. That's good, though. I mean, I think that's that's one of the the, the, the keys to writing is, is murder your darlings, right? Like That's depressing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've never... Um, so I think the... I mean, it's solid. I feel like I'm probably at an average of... 400 words a day, um, including weekends too. Obviously that gets my countdown because oftentimes on weekend days, it's zero. Right. Um, so I'm not totally disappointed. That said, I did want to reach a thousand words at least on some days and I'm not really making that. The most I have from November 30th is 982 days. Words. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 982 words. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, again, I, I, I forget if we've talked about this before, either on the podcast or, but you know, one of the, the, as I've sort of, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the writing stage at all yet. I'm still sort of shaping the thing and, and wrapping my head around how, how best to do it. But, um, I, I've talked to, you know, the, the, the guy, uh, he's still doing the, the podcast at, at American Purpose, um, uh, my friend Richard Aldis, and he was the, the guy who hosted the, the podcast at the American Interest. Yeah. Um, and Richard told me, he said, uh, you just got to figure out how many words you have in you and just get those out every day. And I think that's, that's I mean, that sounds really good to me. I mean, so I, I guess the only thing I'd say to you there is like, if you don't, if you don't have a thousand, uh, you just make sure you're consistent. So if you have 600, just make sure you're doing 600 every day and ideally doing them at the same time every day, not not like, oh, mm. I, it's time for me to do this now because I'm not going to have 600 words, but just be like, I don't know if it's at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. I don't know when you, you write best, but you just got to carve that out for yourself. It's like, these are my two hours that I'm just going to sit down and write. And then you just do that and you write. So if it's less than a thousand, it's less than a thousand. I think Richard told me he has about a thousand in him every day and that's what he does. Um, and then he just like does that for, I don't know, like uh, three or four months and he's got a book and that's good advice, week. actually. And I think like one, one thing that I'm struggling with is um, the lack of structure over the course of a day. So uh, when I was writing my first book, Temptations of Power, I was in uh, I was in Qatar. I was living there for four years. Um, and this was one of the years when I was really focusing on the writing of the book. And because I had a management role at the Brookings Doha Center at the time, Basically, 50% of my job was directing our research program and then 50% my own stuff. That really helped with my efficiency because I knew I would usually go into the office and um, be uh, ostensibly a manager 
from like two to two to six p.m. Mm. But then before that is when I would do my writing. So I knew that two o'clock was my cutoff point, and that really helped focus, you know, focus my um, my efforts and attention. And I think I'm missing that a little bit now. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I, I've never I've never tackled something that big, and it's a little daunting, quite frankly. And so I don't know. I, I'm going to have to, you know, figure something like that out. I'm, I'm collecting notes as 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 the time approaches to actually do it to have some sort of structure. Can Again, you share with us like where you are in the, in the book conceptualization process? Um, yeah, I you know I, I I need to actually get the the proposal to the agent. Basically, uh, I mean I, I talked a little bit on the with the Mike on the Michael Weiss podcast, like what the the idea behind it is. But I, I'll talk a little bit if you want about the 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 rabbit holes that I'm falling into. And I think that's the other thing that that's now I need to also become more disciplined on as I try and shape the thing. Even is not getting tempted to fall into rabbit holes. Um, the, the well, what's considered a rabbit hole for you? Okay, so you know, very very briefly, the idea behind the podcast, uh, behind the book proposal, <laughs> is uh, that you know uh, that American foreign policy didn't really change in like 1991 or '89, um, but really, uh, you know, that like the real sort of period periodization starts in 1995. That's when like sort of America really decides after the Cold War that it can and should uh, be sort of changing the world. So. The rabbit hole um, is that I fell into, uh, you know, I guess sort of nervously wondering about uh, exactly, you know, American attitudes and sort of the interwar period and sort of American foreign policy before World War II. So I remembered that uh, Kennan's American diplomacy is really good on that. And I hadn't read that in a while. So I, you know, dusted that off. And um, that's actually a pretty quick read. So I sat down and, and read the read the whole thing, basically. Um, and then, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I, I'd already said for myself that I wanted to, again, read a second time. Uh, this is less of a rabbit hole, but it's um, John Lewis Gaddis's uh, um, strategies of containment, which is basically sort of strategic uh, flow from like 1945 until, you know, the end of the Cold War. Um, but then like reading Kennan, Kennan's American diplomacy is he's writing in like 1950 and he's making the case about the changes in American foreign policy that start with John Hay's open door policy in China and basically Teddy Roosevelt's stuff. Um, and then takes that through uh, World War II, and then he's ruminating in 1950 as he's writing, as he's doing these lectures, which is what American diplomacy is. It's a series of his lectures. He's ruminating about how America's changed in that intervening period. And there was actually liter literally one sentence, and this is why it's a real rabbit hole. There's like a sentence in there that that I thought was interesting in how it portrayed uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And it was, you know, it's Kennan who is very much against American, like, you know, he's he's... He thinks that America doing more abroad is um, is bad for like America. Basically, I mean, he's he's not an isolationist because containment's not isolationism. But he is he is very um, um, how do I put it? Like sentimental about America and worried about America sort of losing its soul by going abroad. That's like Kennan's whole thing. And so he's really harsh on Teddy Roosevelt. And I realized at some point I, I don't know very much about even that period, about basically that switchover. And I've read like, again, these sort of like big histories that talk about how America discovers empire under Teddy Roosevelt, right? But it's all like at 30,000 feet. 
And actually, our friend Rachel Rizzo was like a big Teddy Roosevelt fan. So I, like, she I, loves him. And so I, I sent her this, this like quote from, uh, from Kennan and, and, uh, and I was like, yeah, is this right? And she was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. She just like didn't really pay attention. Didn't really answer the question. So, so <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta figure this out. And then I, I just like dug up this book that like Walter Russell Mead suggested to me a while ago. Um, and it's by Warren Zimmerman. It's called uh, First Great Triumph. And Warren Zimmerman turns out was uh, America's last ambassador to Yugoslavia. And he actually has a memoir about that, which is actually quite good about the beginning of the Yugoslav wars here in the, you know, at the end of the Cold War. Also, that is important for my book. Uh, but anyway, so I, I fell into this like complete rabbit hole about reading about these, these uh, you know, four advisors of, of Teddy Roosevelt and sort of the psychology of both American Manifest Destiny, um, the whole sort of idea of how, uh, you know, Americans' attitudes. Again, these guys are all Republicans. They're all like Lincoln Republicans. They're all moderate Lincoln Republicans. Uh, they're all abolitionists. They they hate slavery, but it's just fascinating how at the same time, you know, their attitudes towards colonialism, towards American empire, towards basically, you know, social Darwinism and and like the hierarchy of the races, more broadly speaking, is so well entrenched. So I don't know, just like really fascinating stuff there. And it's sort of trying to grapple with, again, like what is it that drives American foreign policy? I guess not completely useless for what I'm, what I'm trying to do, because again, I, I sort of want to make a case or, or at least sort of get my head around what an inflection point 1995 was with like the sort of the tensions about how Americans were approaching foreign policy in that period after the Cold War when they were like, we won, we're good, we need to like reap some benefits. And then that the tension of that American idealism, which I, I think really takes off after 1995, after Dayton, after Bosnia. And so, yeah, you know, I don't know, like it's what I'm reading right now is not useless to me, except my book's not about it at all. And like <laughs> it, it, at, at best, at best, like it'll like, like two paragraphs will, will feature on this sort of stuff. So it's a rabbit hole. But what you just said, you know, um, it's a reminder of some of the joys of writing a book or some kind of long project is that you end up going in these digressions where it doesn't necessarily feature prominently in the book itself. But you wouldn't have otherwise stumbled upon whatever thing unless you just sort of like opened yourself up to, you know, there, there's something about writing a book where it's it's a real intellectual project of exposing yourself to new ideas and just reading a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. And there there is something, I think, to take pleasure in there, even if it doesn't lead to something particularly productive. But what you did say did remind me of um, it or it made me think. We, we, you know, the world has come a long way. Like, you know, the, the concept of progress, when you think about how um, senior officials and, you know, U.S. politicians talked about other peoples and races, you know, as recently as just last century, um, you know, it is a reminder that things have gotten a, long, uh, gotten a lot better. And I say that partly just to sort of troll you on the issue of progress that there are these, you know, anything that you read from, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, let's even talk more. Yeah, I mean, we don't even have to go back to the times of Teddy Roosevelt. You're just struck by how much better we've gotten talking about other cultures and religions. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, certainly less racist. I mean, that's true. Um, I guess the, 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 it's, it's an interesting thing that, 
certainly is not part of my my idea for the book at all, but it is something that I I, I wonder about. And that is, I mean, we sort of were were dancing around this a little bit with uh, with Andrew last week, or I was in any case. Um, and uh, I, I I sort of like brushed up against this in our little debate that we published uh, the other day. But it's the question of, um, I guess it's a question of like purpose and uh, and 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 at the same time a sense of elite pride in and um, drive for the country. There's something about again. Let's not forget that Wilson himself was was a profound racist himself, yeah. right? And um, and Wilsonianism in its original incarnations, I had like so many interesting contradictions within it. But insofar as like Wilsonianism is like the lasting legacy in, and in so many ways as um, America has gotten more progressive and more, I don't know, uh, you know, like all those nasty rough edges of sort of, you know, American empire have, have been sanded down. They've been filled in by this kind of Wilsonian idealism. But at the same time, what's weird about it is that that like what's been lost is a kind of, I don't know, sense of like American yeah, like a, a kind of American chauvinism, I guess. And I, I say that I guess to be to be like extra prov- provocative, but but think of it in terms of of um of like actually not working for some imagined ideal of humanity, but actually being like hard headed about about America. Now, like no one, no one talks that way anymore because it's not right to talk that way anymore. But I do think it it leads to a kind of wooliness in in in, in policy and in foreign policy in general. Never mind all the stuff that we were talking about. Uh, with Andrew, which I think is on the domestic side, which is that you get this kind of meritocracy, this kind of sense of uh, an elite that's no longer connected to the country that it works that that it's from. It doesn't feel like it is. In fact, there's an article that came out, uh, I think, after our podcast that made the case that basically, you know, a lot of this um, America's evil stuff just basically, you know, gives license to uh, Western elites, especially American elites, to just wash their hands of their country and then like work for these gauzy, you know, uh, progressive goals that that actually cost them nothing to do and are actually probably unachievable. And so I guess what I'm getting at, it's like there's nothing, there's no need to be uh, nostalgic for the kind of, you know, uh, bigoted empire of Teddy Roosevelt or or even the uh, you know, certainly not the the like the overt racism of, of of Woodrow Wilson, and yet still there's something that's something that's been that's been lost in this kind of like as our elites have become I don't know what just kind of you uh, know what the word flo- is floating idealism. What's the word? Feckless. Yeah. No. I yeah. Feckless. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I've used it. No. Yeah. No. But I feel like. Um, you know, less race, I mean, maybe smarter, less racist, more degrees, whatever, but definitely more, definitely more on the feckless side. But where Um, does this fecklessness come from, you think? Oh, wow. That's a big question. I mean, that could be a whole episode, I think, in fact. I feel like this is a a trend where we have now in the podcast where we say like, that could be a whole episode and then we never come back to it. (laughs) You know, what's funny. Um, I actually, we should tell our listeners, we didn't, we really did not agree on a topic 
for this episode, which I guess is evident now that we've been talking for almost an hour and there hasn't been a clear topic, which I actually like. I think every now and then um, there should be an episode where just, you know, you and I hanging out and just talking about things without a clear agenda. But I did have a couple notes I did want to bring up, and I think that could also be another episode. So here's what I have. Um, my notes are actually very brief, very shorthand. I have transportation slash Matt Iglesias. Good. Number one. Yeah. Number two, Obama won because of Iraq and Syria didn't happen because of Obama mm-hmm. and Trump happened because of Obama. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. <laughs> no, that's good. And then, th- <laughs> and then third point is just, uh, just a quote out of context from Henry Kissinger, but I was planning to expand upon it. The quote is this. The history of things that didn't happen has never been written. Right. Yeah, you actually quoted this in a previous episode, I think. <laughs> but wait, wait, are you being serious? Is that just like what I do? I just quote Henry Kissinger in, in, ev- in like random episodes. You, you attacked me for 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 channeling uh, your your nemesis Ben Rhodes, and then quoted this Henry Kissinger at me. I think in the bonus episode, like oh, it was a bonus, a yeah, okay. But but uh, uh, you're, you're forgetting. Actually, we did have a plan for doing this episode. It just went off the rails. It's uh, the plan was to talk about. Uh, some of the, the things that you raised in, 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 in the debate. Um, and uh, so basically I was going to uh, pick your brain about uh, Bruno Machias' new book, which you've read apparently when I haven't read. Yes. Um, but again, I, you know, I think maybe the, the thing to do there is to, to try and get Bruno on and actually and talk to him because I think, yeah. he, I think Bruno is one of the, the, the really interesting thinkers these days. I mean, I, if like he is, not just sort of ceaselessly interesting it's he's he's impressive by like in how many different directions he can pull and like constantly be coming up with interesting stuff on it um so maybe maybe that should be shelved to you know actually get bruno in here to actually yeah that know, would be cool i was actually thinking about that if we're going to talk about um fantasy versus reality and online play acting yeah who better to have but then but then but the person who actually wrote a book that deals with a lot of this. And, um, you know, as you said, like for our debate on wisdom of crowds, which would, which I'd encourage all you guys to take a look at if you haven't already. Um, I did read back, uh, <laughs> I did reread some of history has begun Bruno's book and some of the passages really stood out to me. I think they're extremely relevant, perhaps even more so, um, in light of the last few weeks and what we've seen with the fantasy world that Trump supporters, have built up for themselves when it comes to um, not accepting uh, the results. But obviously some of them are now accepting the results. But we can save that, I think, um, for another time. I think it might be time to move on to our bonus episode. And I would, and maybe this is a a reminder for all you guys, if you do want to listen to our um, bonus members only episodes, uh, we would encourage you to consider subscribing and becoming Part, I mean, of, of course, all of you guys are part of our community anyway, and you always will be. But if you want to become part of um, the community within the community, then do consider becoming a member by going to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and paying a small, small amount to support our work. And then I guess until next time, Indeed. Demir, any kind of final thoughts or words from Croatia? Um, answer me one thing. Is there snow in D.C.? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, it started snowing yesterday and some of the snow is still out there. 
I did walk over to Whole Foods to pick up some groceries, so I did see the snow. Mm. I have not been completely in my apartment. So in that sense, I have technically interacted with a human being, but a human being at Whole Foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lower kind of human being at Whole Foods. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Anyway, I just want to say I'm, I'm jealous because there's no snow in here in Croatia, and I, I like it's it. Like, we it, Arabs don't like snow, Demir. No, I know. I'm not saying speaking to you. I'm speaking to the to the world in a way to the gods, <laughs> to the, the gods that have deprived me on this. It actually snowed on my birthday in Washington D.C., and it so rarely snows in, in Washington D.C. So I'm a little bitter about that. In any case, all right, everyone and Shadi. Okay. Talk Bye, soon. Bye, Demir. Bye.